Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Well, thank you guys for being here. I met most of you, those who I haven't met yet. I'm uh, Father Patrick Schultz, like I said, from... uh, Sacred Heart in Wadsworth. I grew up at St. Mary's in Hudson, and uh, yeah, I had, it's almost seven years now, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. I had the, the privilege of preparing these two for, uh, for marriage, and, um, and during that time, we talked about how fun it would be to do, like, post-Cana stuff. So, like, Michael, you were exactly, you kind of stole my thoughts. I was like, that's exactly what I was thinking about going into tonight, that um, it's, I mean, a lot of this is like, I've often thought how I wish that the seminary would offer, like, like in particular, a course on canon law for guys who've already been ordained. Like, you take the course on canon law, you learn the theory, you're like, okay, I think I got it. And then you go out to a parish, you're like, I don't know, how do we do any of this stuff, right? You're like, like, I'd love to go back and actually learn canon law now that I've wrestled with marriage files and annulments and these sorts of things. And like, this is kind of what this is, right? So you've been married, a lot of you for, you know, a handful of years now, and uh, you've heard the theory, you've got, you guys do these kind of nights where you invest in your marriages, you reflect on it all. And um, it's just good to have time to kind of do sort of post-Cana marriage tune-up. So that's kind of what I have in mind for tonight. So there's three things that I, I want to talk about tonight. Um, so if you're keeping score, these are the three things. I want to talk about intimacy. Um, I want to talk about honor. And I want to talk about the path of marriage. So intimacy, honor, and the path of marriage. These are the three things that I want to talk about. Um, and I know some of you guys brought journals. That's great. So like, while I'm talking, it's important that uh, just you, that you're not just listening to the words that I've I've, I'm speaking, right? Because I do want you to listen to what I'm saying, but more than that, I want you to listen to like what the Holy Spirit's saying, right? So like, as I'm speaking, there's, the, there's going to be things that'll bubble up and, uh, that's the stuff you really want to pay attention to. Um, so that's the stuff. If you have a journal, maybe you write it down or you got your phones, you can jot things down your phones if you don't have, uh, have a journal. So intimacy, honor, the path of marriage. That's the path. Sound good? All right, so the, uh, here's, I want to start with this story. So back in um, last February, I, I had the privilege of, of being the chaplain for another pilgrimage to the Holy Land, which I don't know if that'll ever happen again. Um, I have to pray for them tonight. But the, uh, I had the, the honor of being the chaplain for a Damascus pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Um, so some of you maybe are familiar with Damascus Catholic Mission Campus down in Centerburg. Awesome organization. Send your kids there when they're in middle school. Just don't even think twice. Just do it. Um, so one of the stops along the way was a, um, was to Cana. And one of the things that you do when you go to Cana, if you're there with a bunch of couples is, uh, you have the opportunity for the couples to renew their vows, which was really beautiful and really cool. So we go to the Basilica in Cana and go through this whole thing where all the couples stand up and they're all kind of like tonight, you know, they're all holding hands and then they all are facing each other and I'm leading them through a renewal of their vows. And, it's pretty awesome to be able to do, to be able to do it there. So anyway, one of the things that I noticed from like my vantage point as a priest from the front of the the church, um, I just was noticing a lot of the body language that was just different from one couple to the next. 
In particular, this one couple, they just were really struggling to, to like even look at each other. Like, and up to that point, there was no signs of like, they like, like, oh, they're, they're struggling. They're going through. Some... There was none of that. Like there was no outward signs of that. But just in that particular moment, you're like, they're just having a hard time. Um, and as the chaplain, I made a point in my mind to like, I'm, I want to, you know, I want to see if I can talk to, to, to them about that. And it turned out that, that the, the man, he, he found me later in the, the trip and he, he wanted to process what had happened there with him. That this is what he said to me. So him and his wife, they've been married 28 years up to that point, bunch of kids, empty nesters, basically at that point. And, um, he said, like, as I was standing there looking at my wife, what I realized was like just how long it's been since I've really looked at her like that, right? Like they're holding hands and like gazing into each other's eyes. Cause there's a difference, right? There's a difference of like, like looking at someone and then like when you're really like gazing at someone, um, and he was just saying, like, I realized in that moment, it's just, it had been so long since I'd, I'd really looked at her. It's like, I see her all the time. I see her every day. We sit across from each other at breakfast. We talk, you know, we have, you know, our morning coffee and we catch up. But like, it's like, I felt like I couldn't even, I couldn't even look into her eyes. And worse still, he said, like, she couldn't even let me look into her eyes. He's like, I th- he's like, he said, I think she just was staring at my forehead, which is a funny thing to think about. Just for being like, I can't look at you. But she, she couldn't even let herself be seen anymore. Like she herself, like this is what he was saying. He's like, I think that she was just protecting herself from me. That she was protecting herself from me. Like, look, you guys are, are kind of only at the beginning of this, this adventure called matrimony that, uh, most of you, I mean, one to three-ish kids. Is that, that, that the right? That's about the right average, yeah. And uh, no doubt, up to this point already, you've already felt some, you've already felt things shift, right? Marriage and your love, it goes through different seasons. It goes through different phases. And it's supposed to, right? And they're like, you know, you talk to marriage sociologists, you talk to people who study these sorts of things, that around that seven-year mark, things really, there's there's a decisive shift that has to happen of, um, when you look at when marriages break down, it's usually around that six, seven year mark. Like that's where you guys are at. That's where you guys are at. Speaking of uh, things <laughs> shifting, right? Like you didn't have kids when you first got married. That's how you do it ideally, right? That's how you want to do it, right? You didn't have kids when you first got married. So all the love that you knew was the love that you had for this other person, which was an extraordinary love, right? you like, like I found this person, I'm going to marry them. I can't believe they want me. I can't believe they want to spend their life with me. Right? So that's an incredible kind of love. And then along the way, like kids show up and like, that's a whole new kind of love for you, right? You discover in you this, this totally new kind of love, this parental love that, um, it's just a qualitatively different thing, right? You as moms, you are experiencing something like that is almost indescribable. And dads, you are experiencing something that is indescribable. This sort of like, I will throw myself in front of a freight train for this kind of love. And you've experienced, <clears throat> you've experienced suffering in those years too. I mean, you've experienced, some of you, I know your story, some of you, you've experienced like the crushing sorrow of miscarriages and losses, right? There's been tremendous changes that have come along the way. And like what I, 
what I kind of want to, what I hope this talk does, at least for you guys tonight, is that I hope that it, in some way, can spare you of what that couple experienced at Cana. That, like, that you're not going to get to the 28-year mark and realize, I, I lost it somewhere along the line. Like, somewhere along the line, that couple, like, they just lost... What he said to me was, I just, I lost the wonder and fascination of her. He's like, I, I can't pinpoint when, but at some point along the line, like the realization that this woman that the Lord brought into my life is such a gift. Like the very thing that, drew, that drove you to the altar. Like this is one of the things that, that I say now to, to couples when I prepare them for marriage is that, um, like it's a pretty insane thing that you're doing being engaged to this person sitting next to you. It's a pretty insane thing being married because there's 8 billion people on this planet and you're saying, forget the rest of them. It's you that I'm fascinated by. It's you that I'm, it's you that I want, right? Like something extraordinary has happened to your heart to, to make sense of the fact that you, like I got this couple sitting in my office to make sense of the fact that here they are sitting on the couch in my office desiring to lay down their lives for each other. Like, I want to give you everything possible that I have to give you. That's what I want to give you. That's an insane thing. So, like, you have to ask the question, what is the, what is the cause that has resulted in that effect? Like, that this other person has made such a deep impact, such a deep impression upon you, that the only logical thing to do at this point now is to give you everything. Like, love pushes us towards this wild prodigality, right? Love pushes us to take the alabaster jar and pour it out. That's one of my favorite things about that scene in the gospel, right? The woman who takes the alabaster jar, which is hundreds of years wages, essentially, if you look at the the way that the math breaks down, and she breaks open the top and she spills the whole thing on Jesus' head. And it was Judas was the one, Judas was the one who said we should do something practical with it. Like the impulse, this is a sidebar, right? The impulse in the church to do practical things, that's always the spirit of Judas. That's always the spirit of Judas. Like the church is supposed to be filled with wild lovers who are like, just have all the gold, have all the, just all the best things poured out on the head of Jesus. Um, but like back to that couple, at some point along the way, the very wonder and fascination that brought them to the altar to give their entire lives away that reality in their hearts got forgotten. Like, think about the, um, so Valentine's Day. Who's the little, uh, the, the little, I was going to say patron, but like, who's the, who's the little guy associated with Valentine's Day? What's his name? Cupid, thank you. Like, I am totally mascot was the word I was looking for. All I was thinking was patron. Kind of like Catholic Yeah, who's the Catholic patron mascot? Yeah. So Cupid. So what does Cupid do to his unsuspecting victims? What does he do? He shoots them with an arrow, right? Wounds them, pierces them, right? That's because that's what love does. There's a piercing, there's a wounding that comes with love, right? That's what it does. That's why we say things like, I fell in love. Something happened to me. This other person made such an impact, this meteoric impact upon my heart. And that wound of love, that wounding, is supposed to stay fresh. This couple and many other couples 
they let the wound become sclerotic and hardened. The trick to falling in love and staying in love is to keep the wounding of love fresh. That's in many ways what this whole night is about. That was a big preamble. Are you still with me? Okay, there's plenty of wine back here if you need more wine. Okay. All right. I love knowing, if you've ever listened to anything that I've preached, I, one of the things I love doing is looking at the meanings and the origins of words, understanding where words come from. So the word intimacy, this is great. Intimacy is from the Latin intimus, which is the superlative, right? The superlative of intus, meaning within, right? So intimacy or intimus is the, the most within. It's that which is the most within, the innermost, right? The deepest. Think of it that way. Intimacy is also related to um, intimere, Latin intimere, which means without fear. So if you're going to let someone into the innermost, if you're going to let someone into the deepest, it requires incredible trust. It requires an overcoming of tremendous fear. Intimacy and fear are these twins that come together. That's a huge thing that we have to reckon with in this fallen world. It's a huge thing that you have to reckon with as married people in this fallen world. Like our culture though, right? Our culture has reduced intimacy as just the thing that you do with your sex organs. Um, It's certainly part of it, but it's not all of it. It's not all of it, right? Like the physical intimacy of husband and wife, what you do with your bodies as husbands and wives, it's, it's always, it's only ever meant to be a sign of the spiritual intimacy that's supposed to obtain within your relationship all the time, right? Like the physical is an icon of the spiritual, right? The physical is an icon of the spiritual. Like the deepest part of you, like my dear sisters, like the deepest part of you is not your womb. The deepest, the innermost part of you is your heart. It's your heart. The same is true for men. The deepest part of you, my brothers, is your heart. Like, like, and I'm convinced of this, that like the desire, like the masculine desire, like I've worked with and walked with enough men who struggled with pornography over the years, that like the desire that really is underneath so much of like masculine, I'll just put it this way, perversion, the masculine obsession with pornography, so much of it has to do with this deep desire to be in whatever is feminine. I want to get inside of femininity. That's a good desire. The enemy has hijacked that desire and said, it's just about the flesh, right? The deepest desire of a man is to be with in the heart of his beloved. That really is, like, my brothers, if you spend time, if you search your hearts, like, that is truly the desire to, to not just get into the mystery, but to be let into the mystery, to be let into that space, to be invited into that space. So, like, for all the times that you guys are not having sex, like right now, for example, which I'm grateful for, <laughs> um, just helps, you know, when you're giving a talk. Uh, your hearts are still meant to abide in each other. Your hearts are still meant to abide in varying levels of intimacy with each other, right? So, like, 
as you go about your day, as you go about your life, the way one of the ways I think about it is like the we exist at varying depths, like various degrees of of depth, right? So like sometimes your conversation with each other is really just about like the grocery shopping list. And like, it'd be very weird and probably annoying if in the midst of the grocery shopping this conversation, you're like, also this thing from my heart. Like, we were just talking about carrots like three seconds ago. And now you're like talking about childhood trauma, you know, like, just just be here for right now, you know, like, but having the flexibility, having having the this, the range of um, like the depth of conversation, I think is so important to know that like you are meant to abide in varying levels of your heart, right? Like this person, again, this person that you're married to, you have, go back, go back to like the beginnings of your relationship, that there was a point in time for all of you when you didn't know this other person who you're now married with, right? And at a certain point, this person showed up on the horizon of your experience, like there they were, right? There he is, there she is. And this person, again, made such an impact that like all of a sudden there's this, there's this desire to let them in. Right? There's this desire to open up. And then you start finding yourself sharing things with this other person. Right? I use the image during marriage prep of, of security clearance. Right? So that uh, like there are people who don't get any security clearance into my world. Like they don't get any access to me. They're like strangers. Right? Like they're the people I sit next to on the plane usually. Like Jesus, I think, puts people on the plane for me to evangelize. And I'm like, I just want to watch Netflix, you know? <laughs> Um, so the, but like, yeah, so it's like, you don't get any security clearance into my world, but then there's people who, um, get like level one security clearance. I often think my mind always thinks of, there was a guy who used to work at Phoenix coffee on Lee road. Um, anybody go to Phoenix coffee on Lee road? Yeah. Okay. I don't remember the guy's name. That's how great friends we were, right? Level one. Yeah. But he, so he, I mean, just like any barista, he was covered in tattoos Big man bun, gauged ears, just ringing a bell. Do you guys, anybody know the guy's name? I know, I'm like describing every barista. Okay, so anyway, he knew, he knew my, he knew my name. He knew I was a priest and he knew my orders. Like I would walk in, he would be like, usual. I'm like, yeah, man, which makes you feel pretty cool, right? Um, and, uh, and he would like, that was like level one security clearance. Like he knew the tiniest a bit about me. He had some tiny access to my world. And, uh, but then there's like people who like, I would say like staff at the parish, people who like I was, I was with all the time who they, they knew quite a bit about me. I was sharing life with them, but I wasn't, I wasn't divulging my heart with them necessarily. Like those were the people that I, um, the people who I I shared my joy with was my friends, right? So like deeper security clearance, but within the friend group, there's even a smaller subset of people who like, I really let into the parts of my heart where I am just not put together where I'm like having really hard, frustrating days where I'm, um, hurt or angry or sad, um, really disappointed, let down those sorts of things. And that's a much smaller group, right? And the deeper down you go, the higher the security clearance badge, the more trust is required because like the more you're vulnerable, the more you could get hurt back to intimus and intimary, right? Like it's scary to let someone in, those, to those deeper parts. And then like, there's, there's just maybe a handful of people that, uh, that I let into my brokenness, into my, into my shame, you know? And like for you guys as married people, what you discovered along the way was no one's ever gotten in this far. No one's ever been let in this far. 
and like because I want to let you in all the way like that that's what marriage is it's this desire this ongoing desire to let someone in all the way all the time like I will let you into the private parts of my heart the most deepest hidden secret parts of my heart and like and because you've made this vow to me that you're not going anywhere that you're all in come what may like I can also invite you into the most hidden private parts of my body right so like again the sexual intimacy is only meant to be an icon of your spiritual intimacy like they're meant to flow together they're meant to be a reflection of each other they're meant to um, be mutually enriching Right? Because the thing that we actually desire is the intimacy. And you can have a lot of intimacy without sex. You can have a lot of sex without intimacy. Right? What we're looking for is like for our hearts to be seen and known and loved and like received well. Like I'm I'm thinking about right now, there's a couple that I was preparing who um I'm like going through this whole thing about the heart with them. And in the midst of this, like the, the groom, he just like, he stopped me very abruptly. And he just like put up his hand like this. And I was like, hey, jerk. And he put up his hand and then he turned to his fiance and he was like, babe, which I thought was hilarious. He's just, babe. Because I was thinking of, um, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. Who cares? It doesn't matter. But he goes, babe. He goes, this is what I've been talking about. Like, this is what. This is what I've been trying to tell you. And then this is what he said, which like leveled me. He goes, like fighting back tears, he goes, I'm fascinated by you. I'm fascinated by you. And he goes, you have to let me in. It was like all three of us are reaching for the tissues, like simultaneously. It was so beautiful. It is so beautiful. I'm fascinated with you. Like that, again, that's, that is the desire for the intimacy. It's also the suffering of realizing I can't force it out of you. Right? Like she was utterly sovereign over her heart. Right? That's why in scripture, read the Song of Songs. You are a garden enclosed, my sister, my bride. That's why the bridegroom comes at night and he's knocking on the door of the bride's uh, house. Open to me, my sister, my bride. That's, that was like, it was the guy was crying out his own song of songs. Open to me. Pope Benedict, he said, you can summarize the entire mission of Jesus with Jesus' words, his one word to that deaf mute man when he groans and he says, Ephatha, be opened, be opened. Like all of salvation history in many ways are, it's, it's God surmounting the problem, solving the problem of the closed off fearful bride who doesn't want to open herself up to the Lord's love. Like that's in many ways what all of salvation history is. And it culminates with like our tainted nature's only boast in Mary who like so perfectly opens herself and says yes, right? She is the response of God's ephatha, open to me. She opens so wildly. So there's such a there's such a profound invitation. So like here, here's I guess one of the things I want to point out too. Like when you read the book of Tobit, like it's a weird story for sure. <laughs> Do we all are we familiar with the book of Tobit? Mm-hmm. Yes. Some okay. 
for those who aren't familiar, you've got this guy. Well, you got this girl. She keeps trying to get married to these guys. And like on the night of the wedding, a demon comes and kills her fiance before they can consummate the marriage. Right. So six guys are buried out back. So unfortunate, right? So then you got Tobit or Tobiah, Tobias. Yeah, Tobiah, Tobias, right? So Tobias, uh, he is desiring to marry, right? Is it Sarah? I should know this. I'm the priest, right? Sarah. Is it Sarah? I'm testing you now, Sarah. Okay, you passed the test. Yeah, Sarah. Yeah, for sure, it's probably Sarah. There's something like that. S A. There's probably an R in there. Anyway. So the, the demon is after their intimacy, is the point. He's after their intimacy. So on the night of their wedding, he has that beautiful prayer. I do not take this wife of mine for, for lust, but for a noble purpose, right? They pray. There's also this weird liturgical rite that Raphael has Tobias do with the fish gall and the liver and the thing and the burning and the incense. <laughs> like, that's so weird. John Paul II has a whole series of reflections on it in Theology of the Body where he talks about how liturgy is the war against, or liturgy is the weapon against the war against your intimacy. Like it is, like the enemy is after your intimacy. Like your, your intimacy, he wants, he wants to disrupt and interrupt your intimacy, both your physical intimacy and your spiritual intimacy. Like at all times, he prowls about like a roaring lion. And here's the thing, right? So, like, when your intimacy results in the conception of a child, like, nothing changes, right? In your marriage, right? When kids come along, right? No, obviously, that's not true, right? Like, baby comes along, energy levels change, the focus that changes, conversations change, sex life stays the same, right? That's what I hear, right? Okay, yeah, everything changes, everything changes, right? And right there... When the challenge and the shift comes, the heart, what the heart wants to do is drift into a path of least resistance. That's what the heart wants to do, to stop fighting for the intimacy, to stop fighting for the heart. And you just let the daily demands of life kind of erode that original fascination. So here's what happens. So your vows, what you essentially said through your vows were, I'm not going anywhere. I'm all in. Why? Because I'm utterly fascinated by you. You are such a gift to me. Thank you, God, for this person. And then it slowly morphs into, you're, you're not going anywhere. So I don't have to do much anymore. Like the original fascination and wonder turns into a complacency born out of taking for granted. Like you're just going to be here. And this is where, like, in particular for men, this is where there's a particular challenge for men. Part of it is the culture. Part of it is the culture in which we ra- that we were raised, where we were kind of raised to be allergic to our hearts. Part of it is just the hardwiring of our neurology. Um, brain chemistry, brain science, we're just so different in the way that we the way that we process our interiority. I'm not even going to say, like, our feelings. But our interior, our interior life, like what's going on in there, you know, compared to women who use 20,000 words a day, we use about 7,000 words a day. Like as men, we have to think about what we're feeling, which I, that blows women away when I say that in marriage prep. Like he, there's like a two-step process. He has to send like a spelunker down, like a bungee jumper from his brain to his heart and be like, what's going on down here? It's like, I think we're mad. Tell him we're mad, you know? I'm mad, right? 
Here's a true story. When I was at uh, IPF in, in Omaha, Institute for Priest Information, there was this, uh, we had this workbook where, like, it was, a, it was in part of our, like, uh, prayer journal kind of thing. And it was this, this, like, mechanical engineering, essentially, flow chart of emotions, right? It was helping men figure out, like, what they're feeling, all these seminarians. So at the top, there was good and bad. You're like, okay, is my feeling good or bad right now? I think I'm feeling good. Okay, then you look down. It's like, are you, are you uh, happy? Are you excited? Are you, uh, you know, like it just went through like very basic ones and it just kept going down. And eventually you're like, oh, I'm just content. <laughs> I didn't even know. You know? <laughs> well, like you had to work your way through the flow chart to figure out what you're feeling, right? Which just sounds so weird to... Yeah, <laughs> laminate it, put it on the fridge. Yeah, Wait, what are you feeling right now? <laughs> yeah, come back when you know the answer, right? Oh my gosh. Okay, so it's just a particular struggle for men to to live in this ha- this habitual world of I'm going to share my interiority. I'm going to let my interiority be exteriorized, right? But here's the thing: the call remains the same. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. As Christ loved the church. Wired into the call of loving your wife is giving her access to your heart. One of the most precious ways to love your bride is to let yourself be loved by your bride. I know that sounds so counterintuitive and crazy, but it's true. To let yourself be known. Like, here's the thing. Like, the masculine heart, while it is meant to be strong and sturdy and powerful and all of those things, there is still in the masculine heart deep insecurities, deep questions. Am I strong enough? Am I man enough? Am I good enough? Am I all of these things enough? And those questions... Like, they never really go away. Like, it's not a... Like, those questions aren't born out of wounds. Those questions are born out of a need. Those questions are born out of a need, not a wound. There's a difference between wounds and needs. Like, the need never goes away. Like, you you have a meal because you need to eat, but you're going to need to eat again. You need to continually discover that you are good and loved and enough and prized and worthy and all of the things. Same is true for you, my dear sisters, right? Like, and the woman, again, speaking to my brothers, like the woman that God, by his providence, has brought into your life to be your wife, like, again, out of all of the men on the planet, she has said yes to you. And like, what is entailed in that yes? The yes is I desire to utterly entrust myself to you. She desires to utterly open herself to you. And in that, like I desire to declare to you your goodness, that you are worthy of the gift of me. You are worthy, right? Here's the thing. If you keep your heart from her, you rob her of the ability to actually grow in the one thing that we're all here to do, which is to learn how to love. If you keep your heart from your bride, like 
she's never going to really learn how to enter into the dance, which is what we're called to do. That's why we're here, to learn how to love, to how, to, how to enter into the dance of the Trinity. Like, you're supposed to be her dance partner, not just, you know, the first dance. You're supposed to be the dance partner that teaches her how to love by letting her love you. And again, my brother's like, masculinity, it is, it is inextricably linked with intimacy. Like, Jesus is the most masculine man who has ever lived, and he allowed his heart... Is there a crucifix down here? Yeah, he allowed his heart to be pierced, right? The soldier thrusts the lance through his side and out pours blood and water, says John, right? That blood and water is the piercing of the pericardium, which is that water fluid-filled sac, right, that surrounds the heart. Doctor people, is that right? Is that right? That checks out? Cool. What is the pericardium, right? It's the, it's the heart's last line of defense. It is saying, I have, I have let you into the utter depths of me, right? In that piercing, that is humanity, Jesus' bride. He's saying, I will let you in all the way. Or think about the image of Caravaggio, the doubting Thomas. He's like guiding Thomas's hand into his side, or again, think of the bridegroom in the Song of Songs when he says, you have ravished my heart, my sister, my bride. Like the actual Hebrew in there literally means you have stripped the defensive layers off of my heart. Like the most masculine man, Jesus, what he exemplified is a heart that allowed itself to be entered, a heart that allowed itself to be pierced. Like that is real masculinity. You have to fight for this like this intimacy that I'm talking about, you have to fight for this. And like the environment that, that nurtures this kind of vulnerability is vulnerability. <laughs> vulnerability begets vulnerability. That's how this works, right? Because you can't crowbar your way into another person's heart. Like Jesus, he, he, he allows us to touch his wounds so that we would let him touch our wounds, right? He goes first. Vulnerability begets vulnerability. And like, the only reason I would let you into my depths is if I sense that like, I'm not going to get hurt, right? If I sense that what is going to be revealed coming up out of me will be honored and reverence. And this brings me to the second point. And look, I, I don't know how long you guys are going to stay here tonight. I don't know how long I'm going to talk, but like, if, if like you got to go, you're fine. You're welcome to go. So I might still be talking. Here's the problem, right? So they asked me to do this like a few months ago, and I've just been chewing on this stuff for like months. And this is, what's great is like, it's given me an opportunity to like put my thoughts together on stuff that I've just been thinking about for years. Right? So like the last time it was the how to share theology of the body with your kids. I'm like, that was, really, that was a great opportunity to like bring my thoughts together. Anyway, I might be talking all night. I don't know. I hope your babysitters are well paid. All right. I'm not going to go, but I'll get a refill. There you go. All right. So let me talk now about honor. Because, like, again, an environment where our hearts are honored is going to be the environment where vulnerability and intimacy can happen. So I've been thinking about the words of the, um, the, words of the, the, the couple says uh, in their vows, right? In particular, I will love you and honor you all the days of my life. I will love you and honor you all the days of my life. I want to consider this under, like, two aspects that I've been thinking about. Like, here's the first aspect. Like, it is such an honor 
to be your husband. It is such an honor to be your wife. It is such an honor that you have let me be your husband. It is such an honor that you have let me be your wife. Like, do you realize who, what you are married to? You're like, yeah, I think, right? Like, like, you're married to the kind of creature that will outlive every star in the universe. You're married to something that's immortal. Like, I think it was Catherine of Siena, or it might have been Teresa of Avila, one of the two. Teresa's feast day is tomorrow, yes. I think, yeah. Um, anyway, I do think it was Teresa. She had this vision where she was given an opportunity to see a saint in heaven, right? And she sees this saint, and she collapses to the ground in utter awe and worship and adoration, so convinced that she is in the presence of the beatific vision. So convinced that she's in the presence of the beatific vision. And the Lord stands her up and says, this is one of the lowest saints in the kingdom. She was tempted to worship it, thinking that she was seeing the Trinity. Like, what does that mean for this glory that's awaiting us? What does this mean for like our resurrected glorified bodies to participate in the life of the Trinity? Here's, here's a little C.S. Lewis quote you probably, probably have heard before. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Like, you're not married to just, like, an ordinary person person like God didn't just look at you and say like ah, okay like she'll do or like he'll do no he gifted you with one of the most amazing amazing things that he has at his disposal another human person like you are married to someone extraordinary again our current world population 8.1 ish billion people I did a lot of research on Google just <laughs> And out of all the people, right, what you are saying by sitting next to your spouse is like, yeah, sure, they're fine. All those other people are fine. And granted, you're not going to meet, you know, 8 billion people. But like what you've declared is I don't need to. I don't need to. I am riveted by you. Or like, think about the, the words of Adam when he wakes up and sees Eve. The, that word, at last, this one. Right? That's what you get to say. Like That's what Jesus, at, at every conception, that's what the heart of the Father says. At last, this one. He didn't, he didn't like draw from a bank of like, yeah, we'll just do that model again and put him in the womb. No, like it is, it is a, it's comparable to the creation of the universe, ex nihilo, the creation of an individual soul. And that's who you get to be married to. That's who you get to be married to. Like, Father, she is your gift to me. He is your gift to me. And like, look, if you have, like, as you're listening to this, if, if those words are more of an ouch than an amen, I just beg you, take that to prayer. Take that to the Lord. To like, Lord, renew in me this wonder of the gift of this person. The wonder of the gift of my bride. To be filled again with awe and wonder at the gift that you gave me him, that you gave me her. And John Paul II wrote this beautiful 
reflection called Meditation on Givenness. Have, you, have you, any of you guys read that or seen that? It's a really short essay. You, it, you can read it in a sitting. It's so beautiful. And he says in there that we're given to each other not as um, tasks, not as fixer-uppers. We're given to each other as gifts. Like the Father bestows us upon one another. Like there's an entrustment. Like one of the things I'm constantly in awe of when I celebrate weddings is the vantage point that I have as the celebrating priest that I get to see what the groom sees. Right? That there's the entire congregation. I see his back and he's looking down the aisle and those back doors open and there she is. Right? There she is. At last. Right? And you, you almost can imagine like the hands of the father behind Eve, behind every single bride, like Adam, I'm giving you the most incredible thing I can give you, which is this woman and vice versa, right? Why did he give you to each other? so that you could experience this sort of continual awe and wonder at the mystery of another person. Like awe and wonder also at the mystery of yourself that you are in fact actually lovable. Like there is a taskmaster assigned to your soul, a demonic like energizer bunny who is hell-bent on convincing you that there are just parts of you that disqualify you. There is an enemy assigned to your heart that is, that is his sole focus is to convince you that there are still parts of your story, there's still parts of your heart that, that have to remain hidden because it disqualifies you. And God brought you to this sacrament to have a continuous experience of divine mercy, to have a lifetime of having your crap exposed and have your crap loved. A lifetime of discovering, I can't believe you still love me. I can't believe you still want to forgive me. I can't believe you still desire me. I can't believe that you still have eyes for me. I can't believe after all of it, you want me. That you're, that you're still wantable, like all the way down to your very depths. Like not just your impressive parts. Not just the resume parts, not the curriculum vitae parts, not the party parts, not the like entrance of the house, the, the, the foyer parts. I'm talking like the crap at the crawl space of the basement, like where the cobwebs are and the shameful pictures and the fourth grade fat face where you're just not letting anybody see those pictures, right? Like all of the parts are lovable all the way down. And this one person that you're with as a married person you get to practice right now. You get a little foretaste of the communion of saints. Like you get to experience right now with one person what the communion of saints will be. Which is wild. Wild. John Eldridge, who's one of my favorites, John Eldridge has said this, that the communion of saints is multiple intimacy without promiscuity. Just like chew on that for a second. Multiple intimacy without promiscuity. So like one of the things, the complementarity of your vocation and my vocation, that one of the things that I have this incredible privilege to experience is like I get to travel into the depths of so many hearts. Right? Like I get to see 
so many hearts. I get to know so many hearts and so many stories. I get to like, like in the confessional, like the bride opens herself. She, she takes the fig leaves off and she just shows herself to the bridegroom over and over and over again. Like I get to see that. It's, it's a spiritual intimacy that I have with a wide swath of the bride. No physical intimacy, spiritual intimacy. What you get to experience with this one person is this profound depth of, un, like this unbelievable depth of physical intimacy and spiritual intimacy with one person. It's practicing for the communion of saints, which is wild. The other aspect of this that I want to share, this other aspect of honor is like, I will love you and honor you all the days of my life. Let me just ask this. And we can do a little talking here so I can drink my wine for a second. What, what do you think those words mean? <laughs> like when you promise them to each other, what do you suppose you were promising? I will love you and honor you all the days of my life. So I don't think there's, like I agree with all of those. I don't think there's a, a single like right answer. Let me, I just want to share like what I've been contemplating, how I've been praying through this over the last few years that I think to honor, another word that we could put in its place is to reverence. I will honor and reverence you all the days of my life. Or I will, uh, another way maybe we might put it is to, to treasure, um, to hold as precious. Like, again, back to that faithful day in the garden. Our hum, human family has been plagued with the fear that there are parts of us that if they were all to be seen, some of these parts, some of these stories, some of these habits, some of these memories, some of these things that like they would be, they would disqualify us. There's parts of us that are fundamentally rejectable. And so we protect ourselves from the wound and the, the, from the fear of rejection. We protect ourselves from rejection by not letting ourselves be fully seen and fully known. And I hear it in the confessional all the time. Um, how people put lipstick on the pig of their sins because they don't want to just say it. Like there's this barrier of I'm just going to say it this way because I just can't be totally honest. And what happens is we're never ever fully loved. We render ourselves incapable of experiencing the kind of love that we most want. Which is I want to be loved when all my masks are off. I want to be loved in all my parts. Like, I think we can even say this, that like the entire spiritual life is the arduous journey of coming out from hiding, coming out from behind all of our fig leaves, coming out from behind all of our, yeah, the places where we've hidden. Like, like God's first question to humanity in the garden was, Adam, where are you? Like, you've hidden yourself from me. Or think about Jesus. We always think about this in terms of kids, but he says, let, let the little ones come to me. Like, I've been praying with that a lot over the last year or two. Like, he's saying, let those little parts of your heart come to me. The littlest things, let that come to me. I was thinking, I saw um, one of the little girls at my parish, she's in fourth grade. She, uh, she was in a production of The Wizard of Oz recently, and I went to go see it at Akron. Everybody performed somewhere in Akron. And... Um, 
Glenda, the good witch, she's coaxing the munchkins out of hiding. Who's seen Wizard of Oz? Mm-hmm. Right? What does she say to them to get them come out? Who remembers? Come out, come out. I was in a lot of productions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, keep going. Yeah, come on. Come out, come out. What does she say? Oh, come out, come out, wherever you are. You can are. just say it. You don't have to sing no. it. What's the next line? Sing it in your head. Wherever you are. Oh my gosh. Okay, what's the punchline? The punchline is she's she's coaxing the little ones to come out from hiding, right? That image came up in prayer like a freight train a few weeks ago. I was like, oh my God. Glenda, Jesus is Glenda. Glenda is Jesus. <laughs> And all these little fearful parts of my heart are munchkins, right? So, like, in your marriage, you get to go on this journey of, of fully coming out from hiding with this other person, right? I want you to listen to this quote. If it helps you absorb it, just close your eyes. Just listen to this. To allow oneself to be loved is to allow oneself to be found. Love is suffering because it draws out of us our true condition a condition we've been hiding from others. The one who loves us is like a searching light in his or her fascination with us. Love wants to know. Love wants to revel in our real presence. The suffering that is love is the pain that is known when sinners attempt to reveal themselves after a lifetime of emotional reserve, independent living, and self-concern. Love's suffering is the pain of coming to life as a gift for another. Ultimately, being such a gift and remaining in a posture of self-giving, it will become joy, not pain. Like when you said that, those words in your vows, like, I will love you and honor you all the days of my life, what, what you're really saying is like, I, I promise I will reverence all the parts of your heart. Like, I will not scoff. I will not belittle. I won't make fun of your heart. Like, your heart is safe with me. Like, your heart is safe with me. You are safe with me. You can come out from hiding. Like, like there are parts of you that are, that, that, there are stories that you haven't told. There's parts of you that you've kept hidden because it's so embarrassing, not because it's weird, but because they come from such young, little, immature places. Maybe it's like these places of, of wild dreams or wild desires, things that you've never spoken to another person. But like you, like I will honor it. I'm not going to scoff at it. Like I hold your heart precious. Like here's the thing to think about. Like hearts are the most exquisite thing that God has made in the universe. Because he chose it to be his dwelling place. Like he desires, yes, he desired to dwell in the flesh among us and he delights to dwell in our tabernacles. But the place he wants to dwell is your heart. Like he made your heart to be his dwelling place. My father and I will come to you and we'll make our home in you. So we have to be very, very careful with how we treat each other's hearts. Again, back to that original thought of like, to stay in that posture of continual awe and wonder will protect you from taking for granted your spouse's heart. How are we doing? I have just one last thought. 
Can I share one more thought? Yeah. Okay, this is the last thought. The third thought is this whole thing about the path of marriage, right? Because you were asked, again at your wedding, will you follow the path of marriage for as long as you both shall live, right? Will you follow the path of marriage? Again, what, like, what does that mean? We don't have to go around at this, time, at this point, but like, on the day of your wedding, did you have any clue what you were promising? You're like, will you follow the path of marriage? You're like, yes, we will. I don't know what that means. Yes, we will, though. I will follow that path as soon as I get a map and figure out where that path is and where the trail headed. Like, what does that mean? I will follow the path of marriage. I'm going to put it very simply. Like, the path of marriage is the way of the cross. Your marriage is an icon of Jesus's marriage. Your task, your invitation is to make present in the world Christ's love for his bride, right? Christ's spousal love, right? So you, this is why you get married at a church in front of an altar, because that's where Christ got married. I'm not saying at a church in front of an altar. I'm saying it was sacrifice. You get married at Calvary. That's what the altar is. You go to Calvary because Jesus got married at Calvary. The words that you say, this is my body given for you, like I'm giving myself to you, like you're taking Jesus's words. His vows become your vows. That's why Catholics don't get to write their vows because they were already spoken on the cross 2,000 years ago, right? The path of marriage is the path of the cross. It's the way of the cross. That's what you're doing. That's the path that's the path you're walking. Like our, our culture, right? Our culture and the enemy, they try to do everything in their power to prevent young couples from marrying in the first place. But then if, if couples get married, so like you guys, the couple, the, the enemy didn't succeed. You got married. Then what he tries to do is he tries to erode the commitment by getting you both to accuse the cross that's at the heart of marriage. Like, I don't want to go to that destination, I don't want suffering. I don't want to lean into this. I don't want parts of me to die. I don't want to die to this. He gets you to accuse the destination. He gets you to accuse the cross. I don't want the cross is what you end up saying. And so what do we have? We have in our culture, when you look at social media, you got like, one of the things I've, I found fascinating is this sort of like, the way I, the way I describe it is this sort of like mommy wine culture. Right? Like, it's fine to have girlfriends. It's fine to have, like, ladies' nights out and things like that. I'm not accusing you of that. What I'm saying is there's this, this lie that's being put forth in the culture that for women to actually, like, get through the burden of marriage and family life, you better have a fridge full of rosé. Like, that's the only way to do it. Right? Like, you need your wine. And, like, for men, it's this sort of dad's not really, like this co-equal share of the burden. He's not really the, the main guy. And it's, it's dads who are the babysitters of their kids. Like, I can't tell you how many family times at family events I've heard at the parish. Like there's one dad in particular that's coming to my mind. Um, he says often, yeah, I got to babysit the kids tonight. Like his kids. You're their dad. Right? Like, in other words... I'm not really in this. I'm not really in this. I'm just the babysitter. 
Like the in, here's the thing: the invitation into the nitty gritty of family life is the glory. <laughs> That's where the glory is. If you want to know where the glory is, it's in the Cheerios on the ground. And I know that's so easy for a celibate to say. Like, I get it. 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 It's in the blowout. It's in It's in the blowout. It's in the, we got to start the bath because there's spaghetti up your back. Like, the quite literally, like, the glory is hidden in the nitty gritty that's right in front of you. It's right there. Like that's what the incarnation says, that God came and touched every aspect of humanity. And when he raised marriage to the level of a sacrament, what he did was he said that every aspect involved in this thing called marriage and family life is going to be a touch point. It's going to be a conduit through which grace will reach you. Like there is grace waiting to reach you in the laundry, in the dinner, in the diaper. Like it's in there. That's where it is. It's not in some mountaintop somewhere else. Yes, you can have a grace-filled kind of adventure somewhere else. That's fine. I'm telling you, like, it's in there. There are, there's, there are, many, there are many men who I think, like, lose sight of this in our generation in particular. Like, I want, like, we live a very cushy life. Like, we weren't meant to live the kind of cushy life that we live. We were meant, like, we have cavemen bodies living in these modern times. Like, our bodies as men are especially desiring hard things often, right? Like, that's, that's honestly why I think, like, Exodus 90 took off. I think that's why Jordan Peterson is so attractive to so many men, right? And there's nothing intrinsically, there's nothing wrong with those things. But, like, there's guys who've done Exodus 90 four, five, six times because they're looking for the hard outside, outside of their vocation. Like, it's like, it's this intuition that says, yes, I know I need the cross. I need something to be hard. I need to suffer something. I need to be challenged with something. But like, no, not that. I'll choose the thing that I want to be hard and to suffer with. Like, I'm telling you, like, the battle, the battle that, that men are so attracted to, it is interior. Like, there is a real war, and it's a war for your heart. There's a war for your attention. There's a war for your heart. Like, the impulse to, to, to be a martyr, that like, there's, like, I will lay down my life for Christ. Yeah, well, could you just take out the trash tonight, though? <laughs> like, the, the slaying of your, fine, slay the enemy, great. But you you have to first slay your ego. Like, put to death the fat, relentless self who just wants to choose your own cross. Like, say yes to the cross that God has given you, which is the cross that's right in front of you. Like, in particular, again, my brothers, like, there is an invitation to be the bishop of your domestic church. Now that's that's one of the things that St. Augustine said. He's given, one of the wonders of God is that he's given priests of fatherhood and fathers of priesthood. And if, 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 you, if you abdicate the role of shepherd in your family because you're pursuing some cross somewhere else, like someone else, something else will come in and fill that spiritual void. 